I believe that we should take the proposition that every American who wants to find work and is willing to work for it should be able to get a job, not just seriously, but literally. That should be our goal. We should be working to achieve that. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies, and strategies that can be to foretell populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. It is very difficult to think about anything in world politics right now other than the rise of authoritarian populists who have taken over power in the United States with Donald Trump, in the Philippines with Rodrigo Duterte, in Poland and Hungary and Italy and many other parts of the world. But I think it slightly makes us overlook how significantly they have also transformed the politics of countries where they are still far from power. Look at Germany, where the alternative for Germany, a far-right extremist party, is now at 13%. In some polls, it actually leads the Social Democrats as the second strongest party in the country. And even though it's not in government, it has transformed the German political landscape. It's made it much more difficult for parties to form coalitions. And we have seen the start of a process of populistification. That's an ugly word. If you have a better one, send a suggestion to me. The populistification of more moderate traditional parties, like the FDP, the liberals who ran to the right of Angela Merkel on social issues and did not want to enter her government, like the CSU, essentially the Bavarian section of Angela Merkel's own party, who have nearly thrown the government into a deep crisis over the last days, over the threat to quit it because of Angela Merkel's refugee policy. The same is true in Great Britain as well, where three years ago we had a relatively stable center-right government, a sensible Labour Party, and no real suggestion of leaving the European Union. Now we have had a referendum called by David Cameron to appease a small fringe of Eurosceptics in his party. We have seen the British population use that referendum in order to show the political establishment how unhappy it is. We have seen a complete failure by the political leadership on both sides to shape what the country should look like after the Brexit referendum. We have a leader of Labour who has many more similarities to Jill Stein than he does to Bernie Sanders and a Conservative Party which is hopelessly divided and increasingly tempted to go to the far right as well. These are just two examples. You could look to Sweden, where there's upcoming elections, to Denmark, where the Social Democratic Party has passed some quite extreme measures against immigrants, and to many other countries as well. The threat of populism does not just consist in taking over the government, it also consists in infecting and changing the policies the political strategy, the rhetoric of more established parties. But now I'm really excited for Jake Sullivan to join me on the podcast. Jake was the head of the Department for Policy Planning at the U.S. State Department and then went on to be the head of domestic policy for Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign. He also wrote a recent essay, which we will mention a couple of times during the conversation, called The New Old Democrats for Democracy Journal. 
And it's one of those essays that really made me think deeply about the kind of platform that Democrats should run on in 2020, and also made me think that the battle lines between moderates within the Democratic Party and the robust left within the party, which seems so stark in the media and especially on Twitter, perhaps are not quite as clear and clean as we like to think. The conversation is full of great reflections, both on what we need to do to transform the country and on what Democrats need to do to actually win in 2020. I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Welcome to the podcast, Jake. Thanks for having me. So, you know, you were basically the guy who formulated domestic policy for the Hillary Clinton campaign. And you've written a really interesting recent article that essentially says, you know what, in some ways in this political moment, we can go much further than we did on the campaign. So I found it fascinating. So I want to hear, first of all, how would you characterize what the program actually was and what were the ways in which you feel retrospectively that it fell a little short? Well, let me start by saying that the program we developed, we developed in the context of first a primary clash against Bernie Sanders, mm -hmm. who was asserting an incredibly bold and ambitious vision for government, but essentially an old-fashioned one, a big government solution to every problem, a strong social safety net, single-payer health care, massive public works programs, essentially looking back at the old Democratic playbook from decades ago and saying, let's take every page of it and apply it to today. And so what we sat down on the Hillary campaign to do was figure out, okay, what are the actual challenges we're dealing with today? And then what can we realistically get done? And Hillary's entire argument in a way was you make progress one step at a time. You make change incrementally. And that is how you deliver a better life for people. So a lot of our policy program was targeted towards showing concrete progress down the track of tax reform, down the track of childcare or paid leave policy, down the track of making adjustments to competition policy to you know, reduce the power of monopolies. But I think where we fell short was setting the really big ambitious goals that said, actually, we can entirely remake portions of our economic and domestic policy to deliver for people. So is that a communications or a substance problem? It's right? both. Because, right, so on, on the communication side, it may be that actually, look, there's all of these great policies that really would make a difference in reshaping how capitalism works in our country, but none of them are easily communicable in a way where people get, oh, here's what the difference is going to be. So it feels like the status quo. And then the substance problem would be, no, actually, even you know the 217 policy proposals taken together wouldn't really be up to the scale of a problem. I think we self-censored to a considerable extent during the campaigns, and I hold myself responsible for this. That reflects to a certain extent the candidate. Hillary Clinton is somebody who has a self-described responsibility gene. She mm. doesn't want to make a promise on the campaign trail that she feels she can't deliver once in office. She also is somebody who has spent a career fighting against very powerful forces in a politically constrained context where she had to scratch and claw for every inch of progress mm. that she could get. Whether that was true during her time as first lady, and she had obviously the harrowing experience of the failure of the health care bill, or her time in the Senate, when for many of the years she was in the Senate, for all of them, you had a Republican president, and many of them, you had a Republican majority. So she was getting progress inch by inch, mm. little by little. And that meant that when we were actually putting a policy program together, we were not just asking, what is the right prescription, irrespective of politics? We were saying, what do we think we can get done? Mm. 
And in that context, you know, just to take as a policy example, when we looked at something like tax reform, rather than ask, how do you actually get at the fact that everybody at the top end of the income spectrum is making their money from wealth and not from labor? Right, right. Let's solve for that. We proposed a very small millionaire surtax. Hmm which raised some money, but essentially we went much smaller, much less ambitious because we thought this is what the traffic can bear. Right. And for somebody who has deeply progressive instincts, and Hillary Clinton does, I think a lot of the ways in which she was painted during the 2016 campaign were not just unfair, but, but were empirically unsound. They didn't take into account her entire career and what she had stood for and fought for. But she did have, as those of us who worked on her campaign, had a sense that we were bound by certain realities that meant it was difficult for us to make as bold a set of policy arguments as we probably hmm. should have. So there's a funny thing here. I think there might be a little bit of a paradox, and I see that in other countries as well, where voters want really bold promises and ideas in the campaign, in part because often actually they're right. I think we do need some very bold reform in order to deal with the problems that we see in the world at the moment. And then they're willing to overlook the fact that for various reasons it's unlikely to happen. But once a person is elected on that kind of promise, they see that it doesn't happen and then they start to blame them and they start over time to say, well, all politicians are liars. And so especially in a country like the United States that has so many different veto points where a really bold reform could be stopped in the Senate where you need 60 senators, could be stopped in the Supreme Court, and so on and so forth, that puts you into a real dilemma. Because either you promise things that you might think are right intellectually, but that you know you have a tiny chance of actually passing if you get elected. And then you sort of, in the long run, deepen people's skepticism about politics. Or you say, no, you know what? Even though I believe in this and so on, I know I'm not going to get it done. I'm going to be responsible, right? My responsibility gene is going to come through. But then people rightly look at you and say, well, look, even if everything you promised me were put into reality, it wouldn't make much of a difference to the world. So why not go for the guy who says he's going to smash everything up? And I don't actually know how to get out of that dilemma. Well, I think actually I don't give Donald Trump much credit for just about anything. But this is a place where, from my perspective, Democrats can learn from him. Donald Trump is willing to show behind the curtain, to pull it back and say, this is how I'm operating in government. So am I building the wall today? No, but let me show you, I got the first step of mm. it done. And I'm a deal maker. I'm somebody who asks for everything and gets a little bit less. Yep, that's kind of just how it works. In a sense, in that way, he lies about everything under the sun, but he does- He's sort of honest about that. But he levels yeah. with people on the actual sausage making of government. And I think if a democratic or any kind of leader who is looking to make significant progress on economic and social issues sets out a vision and sets out a big, bold goal, and then starts working toward it systematically and is telling people all along the way, not, I've got it for you when they can manifestly hmm. see that- it hasn't been delivered, but rather this is part of the plan. It's going to take a while. Yeah, government's complicated. You know that. I know that. But this is how you get it done. Yep. And you, you ask for more, you get less, then you get the next step, et cetera. And having a more ongoing, honest, candid dialogue with the American people, which I think traditional politicians are more skeptical of doing, hmm. would be a more effective way to break out of the paradox you're describing. Yeah, that makes sense. And it, and it actually showcases your authenticity, right? So you're saying, look, I want this. 
I'm going to be honest with you, it's unlikely to happen. We need 60 senators. We need the Supreme Court to be on board of that. I can't promise you that all of that will happen, but I can promise you that I'm going to fight for it every step of the way. And it's the right thing to do. And the problem, if it doesn't happen, isn't me. It's all of those other people who stand in the way. That's a very clear narrative. It is telling the truth. Yeah, I find it convincing. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting about it, too, is it requires you recognizing that essentially these are campaign style efforts, each of them, that the campaigning doesn't end when you get elected Hmm. in office, that in a way, another lesson of Donald Trump's style, as offensive and oftentimes small minded as it is, is that for the major things he cares about, he is in a permanent campaign and he's taking his message and his argument to the people. You know, I've mentioned the wall as a canonical example of that because I think it's such a good one. This is something he put front and center in the campaign. To me, it is a nonsense, backwards kind of policy, but Trump said, I'm going to deliver this for you. And every day he wakes up the way a candidate would wake up and asks himself, who are the constituencies I need to touch? What are the messages I need to send? And I think a similar style of thinking has to be applied to the kind of progressive economic policy changes that I've been proposing and that you know, would actually make a positive difference for the American people. So I'm excited to get those policy proposals. Before we get there, I want to spend a minute longer on sort of analysis, right? So there's been various criticisms of the campaign promises. I mean, one is that there is not this one sort of very clear promise. I always say that Trump did win on policy, which seems sort of absurd when you look at both how unconvincing the policy proposals are, how normatively noxious they are, and also how thin they are. But the war was a very clear policy promise that said, this is what I'm going to do. It's going to make your life better in these and these ways, and it signals who I'm for. Now, I think there's sort of two slightly different criticisms of the Hillary platform, and I'm trying to think through how related they are. One is on she's not radical enough grounds, right? There's 317 great technocratic fixes, but none of it is a big idea. And the other is, well, rather than setting out a big, broad vision for all Americans, you know, the different policies each had a particular recipient. And that's sometimes framed as an identity politics critique. So it's framed as, well, you know, she would say this is for African-Americans, this is for Hispanics and whatever. But I actually wonder whether that gets it quite right, because in a certain way, it is, you know, also this is for people who suffer from mental health issues. This is for people who've been recently laid off. So it's not all around identity in the sense we usually understand it, but it is sort of thinking, okay, we have the American nation, we break it up into all of these different groups, and some of them identity groups, some of them just interest groups or groups of people who have particular needs. And we're going to try and think carefully about how is their life going to get better. And I think there's a sort of underlying trust in that, that each of those groups will somehow learn about the particular policy that applies to them, and that's going to motivate them to go and vote. And so we can build this sort of coalition. Part of it is demographic, but part of which is sort of different interest groups and so on. And I wonder, A, whether you agree with that as a description of what happened, and B, whether the contrast between Trump and Hillary Clinton did show the limitations of that, that you need to have a broad vision that speaks to people beyond those more localized interests and identities? There's a lot in that question. I want to break it up into three basic points. One is related to whether or not Hillary actually had a kind of coherent economic policy message that was more than simply the sum of 300 different incremental moves forward on every different domestic and economic policy under the sun. The second is how it came to be in the campaign that 
things started getting disaggregated and differentiated across different interest or identity groups. And the third is how we solve for this going forward. So on the first, if you look back now at the way in which policy was covered in the campaign, Hillary just never actually got an opportunity to have her economic policy platform or argument presented to the American people unfiltered through the media, except in the debates. That was the only time that she actually got to talk to the American people about that which she was most passionate about, which was policy. Otherwise, it was emails and foundation and, you know, the mishigas of the day-to-day in the campaign. It's quite remarkable how much that happened. If you look at what she was actually proposing, there was, I believe, more coherence than people give credit for. Essentially, it boiled down to two basic propositions. One was that she was going to make the largest investment in good-paying jobs since the Second World War. And the second was that she was going to redefine a basic foundation of stability for every middle-class family in a fast-changing economy. And she had, for each of those, some policies that laddered up to that, but those were big serious proposals. Did anybody know that? Even close observers of the campaign, even maybe people on the campaign hmm. who were out knocking doors in different parts of the country, not really. Is but, but part of that, that communication fault? Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Right. Because Certainly. But the, I think part of it too is not having the opportunity as you would in a normal campaign right, right. where policy gets covered to a much greater extent than it did in this one. And it didn't in this one, both because of the particular issues that Hillary was under constant assault for and because Trump blotted out the sun on everything. To the extent Hillary's policies were covered, they were covered purely through the valence of Donald Trump. So yes, some of that's on us for our ability to communicate effectively. And some of it is on just the unique nature of this race where nobody was the slightest bit interested in what Hillary Clinton had to say on policy. So that's kind of point one. It's not to absolve us of all responsibility, but it is to say that a part of the challenge here was something distinctive about running against a guy like Donald Trump with somebody like Hillary Clinton, who was in her own way a celebrity candidate. Um, so that's that's sort of point one. I want to get to points two and three, yeah. but you know, Bernie Sanders broke through with policy and Donald Trump broke through in a weird way with policy. And I think you're right to obviously address some of the specific ways in which Hillary Clinton had challenges on that. And frankly, I think it was treated unfairly by the press on on a lot of those things. But it is because they had policy lead ideas that anybody could understand. They had a sense of how that would change life for you, right? So free college, two words, everybody understands what it means. Now, actually, when you look at the policy in more detail, it didn't exactly mean what you'd think it means. And B, you know, it doesn't actually exactly map onto the values that Bernie Sanders claims he stands for, because for all kinds of various reasons, many of the poorest people in the country are not going to go to college, even if college is free. And a lot of the people who do go to college are actually reasonably affluent, but perhaps not in the top 1%. And so actually, it's not clear to me that it makes sense as a policy, because I don't think it's ultimately very redistributive, but makes a very clear promise, motivates a very clear set of people. Now, you know, what you just said is the most ambitious platform, you know, to create good paying jobs in the country. And sure, I want good paying jobs. Everybody wants good paying jobs. But what does that mean? What does that actually mean? And, and I'm sure, again, you're going to be able to talk me through that in great detail. And I believe immediately that those ideas will actually make a bigger difference. But it doesn't communicate in the same way. And so I always found that complaint from the campaign rooted in some very understandable grievances, 
but also perhaps underestimating this point that if there was a clear rallying cry in each campaign speech, what is it we're going to do in two or three words, build the wall, free college, the people understand, then policy would have broken through in a different way. Now, here's a problem. I don't know whether there's a set of policies or even one policy that is equal to the scale of a problem that actually makes a difference, but you can boil down to those two or three words. I certainly haven't managed to, right? Well, this raises what is an emergent issue in the debate within democratic policy circles today, which is the job guarantee. Right. So what I described as kind of one of Hillary Clinton's core pillars was this massive investment in good paying jobs. You rightly point out is not the same thing as free college. It's a little more diffuse, a little more abstract. So the solution to that for Democrats today, or many Democrats Mm. today, is to say, let's take that same suite of policies and we're going to slap a label on it. And that label is that if you want a job and you are prepared to work and you are prepared to be held accountable, that you will get a job. We will make sure that happens. And we call that a job guarantee. That polls incredibly well, actually. Mm. It's quite popular. Now, it comes with this rather obvious downside, which is, you know, within a market economy, is it really the federal government's role or responsibility to say, we're going to employ every citizen in this country, we're going to ensure that that happens. And when you start getting into the fine print, you can have debates over what should actually constitute such a guarantee and what shouldn't. But I've become increasingly open to the idea of something like the job guarantee, not because I believe it in its truly most literal form, but because I believe that it captures the spirit of what we were trying to convey in 2016 Mm. much more effectively than what we were able to do. So you think think you should take the promise of a jobs guarantee seriously, but not literally? Well, actually, Matt Iglesias made exactly that comment in Vox. I mean, I guess I would put it slightly differently, which is to say, I believe that we should take the proposition that every American who wants to find work and is willing to work for Mm. it should be able to get a job, not just seriously, but literally. That should be our goal. We should be working to achieve that. And we should be doing whatever we can in the way of policy intervention to be able to achieve that. And if we can ladder that up to calling it a jobs guarantee, I would be comfortable with that. So is my concern about the jobs guarantee is slightly different, and I'm conscious that we need to get back to points two and three of my original question as you beautifully laid it out. And it's that actually at the moment we're close to full employment. Now, I think when there is a moment of unemployment, there is a real argument for the state to step in in various kinds of ways. But when you're trying to think through what it is that ails Americans at the moment, I think there's some very real things that does ail Americans, not being able to get a job doesn't seem to be the problem, right? The problem is that people have two or three jobs and they still have trouble affording a middle-class life. And so perhaps you can sort of smuggle a bunch of things that actually do effectively deal with that under the label of a jobs guarantee, but certainly at the level of the label, which which does have emotional pull and is effective, it sort of misdirects a little bit because it implies that the problem is with all of these people, there's an economy where there's lots of great jobs and some people have great jobs, but then there's some people who just don't have jobs and we have to make sure that they also get good jobs. But that's just not what I see in the American economy. What we have is a country in which there's a ton of jobs And a lot of them are really bad jobs. And that's actually a tougher challenge for policy to deal with. You're absolutely right. I mean, at the end of the day, and this is something Hillary made a big point of through the first year that she was running, but she ran into 
either too much abstraction or a sense of apathy about the issue or what have you. But when she tried to push this basic proposition that the real issue is stagnant wages hmm. and that rising incomes for Americans to be able to afford the cost of a middle-class life, that's the core issue. Hmm. That's the case she made very passionately through multiple speeches with urgency and with a call to action. We consistently found actually at the end of the day that people when they are on the receiving end of these kinds of messages, put that more in terms of, am I gonna be able to get a job I want and like, and that job then provides me with all of those things. So that arguing for wages, better wages rather than better jobs, consistently does worse mm -hmm. in the way that people react to it. Mm. So I agree with you, if you and I were sitting down to diagnose what ails the American economy, or what really people go to sleep thinking about at night, we might not think that the obvious first place to look is to have this jobs guarantee, particularly at this moment. Although there are issues with describing us as at or near full employment because of the, the ways we measure employment and how many people have dropped out of the workforce. But that being said, as a political matter, since the entry point to this part of the conversation was, how do you actually break through to people? I think this emphasis on jobs is really important. You use the word smuggle, but I think people integrate the broader issue of dignity, good wages and benefits and so forth into the idea of a good job. And so I don't think that it's completely misdirected to be focused on this. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Now, keep in mind that the jobs guarantee that now is so much in the conversation here in 2018, a mere two years ago, was not really on the radar screen of even Bernie Sanders, hmm. let alone Hillary Clinton as a construct. That's how fast things are changing. I want to come back to the, the question you raised about identity groups are dividing up the American electorate into slices and saying, I've got a policy for you. Yeah, point two of my original question. Here, I think to understand why things unfolded the way they did in 2016, you have to understand a fundamental debate between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. Bernie Sanders' critique of the American economy and the American political system essentially boiled down to not quite monocausal, but something close to hmm. a monocausal explanation, which was that the economy is rigged and that there's a nexus of corporate power and political power that is doing the rigging and everyone is getting screwed. And Hillary heard that argument and basically said, yes, that is a significant challenge, but it is not the only barrier holding people back. You also have barriers related to racism, related to the integration of women into the workforce and into the broader economy, related to a whole series of other issues. And it was in the context of how that debate ended up playing out over the course of the primary that almost kind of by the laws of physics led Hillary to disaggregate hmm. all of these barriers as a way to try to prosecute an argument against Bernie Sanders that he was looking at this far too narrowly. Now, that meant that by the time the general election rolled around, the shorthand for all of that was, we need to be thinking about women's rights and civil rights and labor rights and the rights of persons with disabilities and so forth. And what began is, I think, quite a sophisticated case for what is real and true about the American economy and not at all just an effort to buy off political groups or constituencies within the, in the Democratic Party, 
became shorthanded in the context of a political campaign into this list. Interesting. And that's how I think we ended up in a general election where you had a lot of people saying, where am I on that list? Right. I think there was two problems, actually, right? right? So one problem is, oh, you know, there's all of these groups being listed and I don't see myself in them. But the other problem, I think, is that when you start with a big narrative about where we are as a country and what the problem is and how we're going to solve it, everybody's listening. When you start, you know, even if you are on the list, right? And I don't think it's true that Hillary Clinton doesn't care, for example, about the white working class or anything like that. Those are sort of slightly silly criticisms. But even if you are on the list, it's just you hear this person called out and that person and so on and so on. And so by the time it gets to you, you've switched off. No, that's totally fair. I think you're right. It's not just that people were asking, where am I on the list? That there's a an antecedent challenge, which is what is the unifying vision that everybody sees themselves as a part of that is not just they're getting their little slice, but the common mission, the sense of shared purpose. I think that that is fair. And I think, again, just the nature of this debate between Bernie and Hillary helped create the pulling apart of this Hmm. common narrative in ways that I do believe were ultimately harmful and were not intended at the start of this process. And that leads to the third question, which is what do we do about it? And here I actually believe that the lessons coming out of 2016, many Democrats are learning them. I actually think if you go back and look at Joe Kennedy's response to the State of the Union, one thing that he's very conscious about doing is trying to essentially bridge this divide to say, on the one hand, let me talk about how there is a set of big unifying principles that apply to all, and also say there's nothing inconsistent with making that point and also pointing out that there are particular types of abuses that need to be addressed, historical wrongs that need to be righted. And he really showed his homework on that point. I think there are ways to integrate this over time in even more effective and subtle ways. But that's the challenge. This is, I think, going to be, for the Democratic standard bearer in 2020, something they sit down at the beginning of the campaign and think, how do I at once start and end with this big vision while at the same time recognizing that there are unique and distinct features that need to be addressed. So this is a theme on this podcast, but I don't think the problem is how much do we talk about identity politics or how much do we talk about the groups that, quite frankly, are under obvious attack right now from the administration. The question is, how do we talk about that? You know, I was struck when I went to the Cap Ideas Festival, which was a sort of showboating of all of the potential 2020 candidates, or a lot of them in any case, how few people actually made an argument for their positions that was framed as an appeal to Americans in general. And I think, you know, somebody who did do that, you know, don't agree with him on everything, is Cory Booker, who talked about all of the standard issues of actually the left of a Democratic Party. He talked about criminal justice. He talked about completely revamping the public education system and so on. But he framed it in terms of what are we as a country? And by the way, we need to be competitive. And we're not going to be competitive in a global economy if we lock a lot of our young people up and deprive even more of them of decent opportunities, right? So there's a way of making sure that we fight for various forms of social and racial and so on justice, but in terms that appeal to everybody. And I think that's sometimes framed as a sort of weird compromise where, oh, now we have to pan it to the racist or something like that. But that's not what it is. I think it is because of our vision of what's just in a society that we feel anger when there's mass incarceration in problematic ways and so on and so forth. And I think Barack Obama's great talent actually was always to do that. He fought for those things, but he fought for those in terms of a narrative of what he thought America could and should be. Yeah. I think Cory Booker has 
started down the path of figuring out the solution to this. I think Joe Biden has developed this unifying theory around what it means to be middle class in America hmm. that is universal. And he uses that as a jumping off point to then link to some of these other issues. A guy like Mitch Landrieu talks about very difficult issues in, in respect to race and the Confederate statues or New Orleans status as a sanctuary city, similarly in ways that are connected to larger narratives about the common safety or who we are as a community or a country. So I, I actually think we will see a range of different ways of doing this, but most candidates will catch on to this over the course of, or potential candidates will catch on to this as they look ahead to 2020. One point that I would emphasize on this is that if we are going to succeed in this particular theme of your podcast, growth has to be a central part of the story. Yeah. Economic cannot, growth. Economic growth. Yeah. It cannot just be a story of fairness. Yeah. Because yeah. fairness in a way almost necessarily involves some more zero-sum concept of redistribution someone's getting from someone else in order to produce the fairness. Whereas an economic growth story, a story that says we can drive into the future and all do better, allows you in a way to have a common unifying narrative that is positive, optimistic, and positive sum that then also allows you to touch on all of these other issues and, and bring- There, by the way, is a very scary corollary of what you're saying, which I completely agree with, which is that liberal democracies of a form we knew, relatively tolerant and so on, I mean, with obvious shortcomings, were possible during a moment of relatively rapid economic growth and make it harder and harder if economic growth actually slows in a sustainable way. Now, a lot of economists believe that we're about to enter secular stagnation and right. so on. Like with the automation debate, I don't yet see the evidence for that. I mean, right now the economy is actually growing at a healthy clip after a long recession and stagnation and so on. But if it's true that we basically have virtually no economic growth to distribute for the next 40, 50 years, I think we're going to be in a world of trouble. Yes. But that's a, that's a side observation. I think we've gotten deep into the analysis. I want to make sure that we also hear something about where to go from here, because as I read this really interesting article that you recently published in Democracy Journal, there is a new opening now for more robust economic policies that you see not just in the ranks of people who would consider themselves very straightforwardly a part of the left or the far left, but you actually think there's nearly like a new sort of dispensation where Americans more broadly are actually willing to see the state take on ambitious forms of economic reform that actually really move us to a slightly different, let's say, economic regime. So what do you mean by that? And, and what do you think the main elements of that might be? Yeah. So the way that I look back at America's relatively recent history is that if you look at the political center of gravity in the early 1970s, even a Republican president, Richard Nixon, was supporting the kinds of policies that we would today consider quite left, whether it was not single payer, but really aggressive national health care, or a form of universal basic income, or new government agencies like the Occupational Health and Safety Administration. Or for that matter, I tell an anecdote in my piece about how he came very close to signing universal child care. He hmm. ultimately decided not to do it, but it passed the Senate with a bipartisan majority with four times as many voting for as voting against. That was just in the early 70s. Then you have a tide that rolls in with Reagan that I think was a 30-year tide. And I think it basically affected not just Republicans, but Democrats as well. 
The financial crisis, in my view, has had a delayed impact on the way that the American people are thinking about the relationship between the government and the free market. But I believe we're at the start of a tide, possibly a multi-decade tide in the other direction. And there's a number of different indicators for this. First, if you look at opinion surveys on the role of government, we're at a point now where you have a substantial majority of Americans saying, we believe government should be doing more, not less. Those numbers were inverted in 1995, and just before Bill Clinton declared the era of big government to be over. Second, uh, on actual individual policies, it should not come as a surprise to people that both the health care and tax bills that the Republicans pursued last year are dramatically unpopular, not just among Democrats, but among independents, and even their popularity among Republicans is in some doubt. Third, Donald Trump himself, when he ran in 2016, and really understood his own base, the Republican base, was running on a set of things he hasn't followed through on as president, but this is the pitch he was making. More taxes on the rich, a trillion dollars in public works and infrastructure, keep your hands off Social Security and Medicare, and maybe even impose something like Glass-Steagall, which he floated during the campaign. And then the final thing- And and the fact that they were horrified by that and tried to clobber him on that is actually one of the things that weakened his Republican primary opponents. Right, exactly. Because his Republican primary opponents were wrong-footed, not just by the circus that surrounded Donald Trump, but by the fact that he could come in and actually challenge Republican orthodoxy, supply-side orthodoxy in these ways. And the Republican base ate it up. Yeah, and the initial instincts of Republican politicians whose fear had been for many years to be painted as rhinos and so on, was to say, well, look, there's a rhino, right? I mean, he wants to give you better health care or whatever. You know, that's not what we stand for. And, and, and the Republican base said, well, but we should. Yes. Now, Trump doesn't really care about sure, policy. Of course. And so he comes into office and he essentially outsources the domestic agenda to Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell, who are holding fast to their old ideology. And And they actually appear to be so committed. And I've been skeptical of his point at the beginning. I found it a little too easy and a little too glib. But they seem to be so committed to those parts of the economic platform that they're very willing to give up on all kinds of aspects of a supposed respect for the constitution and the rule of law and so on. Yes, they will. So so it is a very unholy alliance. But but now we're just getting to crutching about the Trump administration. No, but the reason this is important is because they had the votes because they have the legacy and the vestiges of the Republican Party that was committed to this supply side orthodoxies. They have the votes. So they almost get health care done, although it's stopped in part because of popular mobilization. And they get the tax bill done thinking we can run in 2018 on this tax bill. And now today they're pulling down ads across the country related to the tax bill because they recognize that it's deeply unpopular. So actually, in a weird way, we are now at the maximum level of distance between popular sentiment on the economy and government policy. Because a candidate who was elected in part by his rebellion against the sort of early economic dispensation has now teamed up predictably with the people in his own party who want to take it furthest. And so at a moment when that sentiment is more developed than it was earlier, and when actually he was elected precisely on that sentiment, the policy that's being put in place is the most extreme distillation. I think extreme distillation is actually 
being too sympathetic to it, the, the most caricatural distortion of what that early dispensation was. Right. And the real question for what happens going forward is whether people's profound discomfort with the way that these policies are being pursued in this gap you describe, whether that is the dominant thing they think about when they go into the voting booth or whether the dominant thing they go into the voting booth thinking about are more on the identity side where they say, Hmm. well, yes, I would like more government intervention and solutions to these major problems ailing our economy, but I'm really worried the Democrats are just going to give handouts to minorities and immigrants, so I'm going to vote for the Republicans. As we go forward, I don't think it's going to be a debate between people saying, you know, everything's fine in the economy, we just have to keep cutting and slashing and burning government and everything else, and those who say, no, we need to be doing big, bold things to help solve your problems. That will not be the debate going forward, the traditional sort of Barack Obama, Mitt Romney debate. The debate going forward will be between the Democrats arguing, we have economic solutions to what ails this country and what is keeping you up at night, and the Republicans essentially arguing, don't believe the Democrats, they don't care about you, they only care about those other people. Hmm. That's going to be the debate. And the question is whether this change in attitude that we see reflected in opinion surveys, reflected in the response to these pieces of legislation, and even reflected in things like this mobilization of uh, support for public schools in the most red parts of our country, oh, yeah. whether that ends up mattering because of this extra dimension. I have some confidence that actually a solid majority of Americans are not going to buy the divide and conquer argument, but that's an open question. And Hmm. that is the horse that Donald Trump will try to ride in 2020. Absolutely agreed. So what do we do? What do we run on? Well, so my basic view is that if Democrats recognize that at this point, not only is the political center of gravity changing, but that that is a good thing, that Democrats can step out and basically say, we are, in fact, the party of Franklin Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson, and we are going to propose big, bold government solutions to the challenges ahead of us. But, and that's the old Democrats part, uh, that we are going to re-embrace the basic dispensation of old Democrats when it comes to the ambition and boldness of potential government solutions. But we live in a new landscape with a new economy, so the solutions themselves have to be new. And that's how I get to this notion that essentially what we need are a form of new old Democrats. Old Democrats in terms of their commitment to bold action, new in terms of how that bold action actually plays out against a new economy. And so what is the basic set of pillars? I describe four in my article. The first is that in the changing nature of work, right now there's all these discussions about the future of work. And I think it's already here. I think it is basically the present of work. We need a new social safety net, meaning that by 2030, we could have 40% of the American economy not in traditional employment, not in W-2 employment, rather as contractors or freelancers or what have you. All of those people should be able to count on health insurance, retirement, workers' compensation, sick leave, and should be able to count on the same social safety net as people in full-time employment. And that should be a promise Democrats are making. Second, we now have as the norm, not the exception, two-income families. So every family ought to be able to count on a basic concept that they will be able to afford childcare and have things like paid leave to support them. So that's how we deal with the changing nature of work, with a new social safety net. Second, 
we have to look at the concentration of wealth in our country and basically have a much more radical and aggressive taxation scheme. And in my view, that means taking a hard look, not just at tinkering with marginal tax rates on the top 1%, but at taxing assets, yeah. whether through the capital gain system or through wealth. It's always struck me that this is a, an area where you can actually make a really good principled argument that would cut through to a lot of Americans, right? So I think as long as it's just, you know, we need more taxes or we need higher taxes on the top. Well, let's put it this way. Even if it's just we need higher taxes on the top, it's easy for people to hear that as we need more taxes. Right. And Americans always think that they're higher up in the income distribution than they actually right. are. Right. And so a much larger number of people than would actually be affected gets quite nervous. Right. I think there's a much more fundamental moral argument to be made here, which is, hey, look at where we draw our taxes from as a country. And you know what? We draw a huge amount of them from income tax. We draw very little of it from corporate tax. And we draw virtually nothing for, of it from capital gains taxes. Right. So you know what we want to do? We want to make it much easier for you to get rich. We want to make it much easier for you to start off in life at 18 or 21 with no real money. And if you make a ton of money, you get to keep a bunch of it. Yeah. But you know what? If you have a ton of money and you inherited it or you whatever, then we're actually going to really robustly tax it. And so making a principled argument that we're just looking in the wrong place for taxation. Exactly. We're looking at income rather than wealth. Now, the implication of that is going to be heavily redistributive, but it's not a matter of sort of, let's just focus in this weird, narrow, myopic way on income tax and play around with brackets. It is making a, a principled argument about what kind of things we should be drawing revenue from. Right. And the simplest way to illustrate this point, I think you've put it better than I even did in my article, but the simplest way to illustrate this point is that the wealthiest Americans make $1 out of every 10 they make from purely labor income and the other $9 from largely accumulation of wealth. Right. And so it's saying to people basically, yeah, right now the tax system is skewed and in a way working Americans are getting screwed because as a percentage of what they're making, they're having to pay more than some of the richest Americans who are having most of the money that they earn in a given year completely shielded from taxation. Yeah. How is that fair? This basic point can be quite potent and goes beyond just saying, we need all this money to pay for a progressive agenda. It's also about how you think about just kind of the, the basic nature of what a fair distribution of a, of a tax scheme looks like. So I think you're you're 100% correct there. On a similar level, how do you address the obvious unfairness of big parts of both the national and international economic system? The fact that so many people manage to hide their money in tax havens, that so many corporations manage to park a lot of the money abroad in perfectly legal ways. The fact that such a big share of the income goes to the top percentiles of the income distribution without weakening the case for free trade, for example, for international engagement. Yeah, I think the, the best way to do this is actually to dramatically elevate this issue of global tax avoidance, which by the way, it's not just very wealthy people in America who are doing it, it's very wealthy people in many countries around the world. Oh, of course. On the international And, and America, agenda. by the way, makes it more difficult in one crucial respect than virtually any other country in the world. And I always preach to Europeans to emulate America, at least in this one respect. I think in general, Americans don't get to go around 
preaching to Europeans or others at the moment, unfortunately. But in this one respect, which is that if you're a US citizen, you have to pay US income tax wherever it is that you live in the world. Right. And that's right. perfectly sensible. And lots of European countries, you know, if you're a British citizen and you don't want to pay tax on your copious incomes and your wealth and so on, you know, you spend 180 days a year or 186 days, I suppose, days a year on a beach in the Bahamas, it means you don't have to pay right. a penny to print. Right, right, and that's right. crazy. That actually America, thankfully, doesn't do. Right. So if you look at this, not just as a, a national problem, but as a global problem, then you have to ask yourself, why is it that when we have G20 meetings, the things that we are talking about tend not to focus on questions around how we capture all of these gains that are currently evading any taxation from any national authority anywhere. That should be, in my view, right at the top of the list. Now, there have been some efforts, but I feel like they've been much more anemic than they should be. So my answer to your question is, the United States should lead a global effort to basically say, we are going to harmonize the treatment of the money moving around through these various shell corporations, offshore accounts, and what have you across the G20 countries as best we can. And we are going to collectively crack down on this tax avoidance. And the net result of that will be hundreds of billions of dollars going into government coffers that deserve to be in those coffers and will dramatically reduce the level of evasion without this becoming a kind of Fortress America situation uh, or disrupting the broader kind of global trade and investment system. That would be my answer. So I agree with that entirely. And I think it's one of the examples of where you have to be clear about what populism is in order to oppose it correctly, right? So, you know, listeners know my analysis of what populism is, but, you know, there's nothing wrong with being emotional in politics and there's nothing wrong with pointing a finger at problems or sometimes even people that deserve to have a finger pointed at them, right? So saying, hey, you know what, there's a global financial system in which people can hide the money and not pay the appropriate amount of tax and that is absolutely unjust and we've got to fight against it. That's not populist in, in, in my sense. It's an accurate description. Right. And showing a little bit of emotion, a little bit of passion about it is not a problem. That doesn't mean that you're sort of by degree starting to resemble Donald Trump. That's a sort of mistaken analysis. Well, it does raise, I think, a fundamental point, which I briefly allude to, but do not resolve in my piece. And that is the issue of having a villain as part mm. of your economic narrative. Donald Trump has a clear villain or a series of villains to include But they change every second day, China, but there's always- But a, there's always a villain. Bernie Sanders- Mercedes is on Fifth Avenue. Yeah, exactly, right. So uh, Bernie Sanders had a clear villain. The millionaires and billionaires, the Wall Street bankers, the Washington special interests. One of the other ways in which Hillary's economic policy arguments couldn't gain traction was that she's less inclined to describe villains. She likes describing solutions as opposed to diagnosing problems. Right. And, and the diagnosis piece often comes with saying, here's why this is happening. It's happening because of that thing or those people. I do think that this moment has opened up for much bolder action, but in the storytelling aspect of politics, Democrats have to think long and hard about this question. How much do they tilt towards a villain-based set of arguments versus 
something that's a little more systemic and abstract mm. and, and can the latter be effective at all? I mean, my natural instinct coming from Minnesota is not to have villains. We can all get along. Everybody's a good person, et cetera. And really we just should work together to solve these problems. Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have gotten great traction by being much sharper in their diagnosis about who's to blame. And I think in politics that usually works pretty well. So that's an open question for me that we're going to have to grapple with. So the question is, can you have a clear villain and yet you don't simplify so much that it sounds as though you're going to be elected and everything will be resolved right. immediately? Right. Because that I'm not willing to do for strategic reasons. In order to win against the populists, we don't just have to win. We also have to be reelected and make sure that populists don't take over four years from now. That's a problem the populists don't have, because once they're elected, they can either stay in power through dirty tricks, or frankly, as with Donald Trump, I think it's a primoire de luge. I don't care what happens after right, that, right? <laughs> right? And we're in a different situation, because we don't just care about getting one candidate elected, we care about actually stabilizing the political system. And so, can you have a very clear villain? And yet, that honesty we were talking about earlier of saying, and I'm not just going to take them down in one moment, and it's going to be hard, and, and your life is not going to completely transform overnight. So, you know, if I make real progress, but not unlimited progress, trust that I'm actually delivering for you. And that's a difficult circle to square. Just coming back to 2016 again, I guess if you think about elections as turning on a number of different factors, for sure, especially 2016, which had a multitude of factors, but one being a dominant factor, and that is who's on your side, mm. who's fighting for you. Yeah. I think Democrats as a party and the progressive movement in general has work to do to make, let's not say the American people some undifferentiated mass, but to make a large number of persuadable voters believe that we are on their side, we are fighting for them. That is partly about what an individual candidate can carry in a presidential election, and that will depend on who we end up nominating in 2020. But it's also partly about tackling a kind of general view that the Democrats are creatures of the coasts and creatures of Washington, and you know we can't really count on them. And so I do think, and this is maybe an error in a way that I made in the article, which is all about economic policy, that I kind of left the political reform aspect off to the side, thinking that's for some other people to deal with, that the threshold issue to even get into an economic policy conversation to convince people you're going to be able to, de to deliver at least in part for them is to be able to convince them, actually, you know what, I'm going to Washington to make it work for you. And I think Democrats have an uphill climb on that heading into this next election. So perfect, because I wanted to finish the conversation by asking you how you would give a little bit of comfort and hope to the many people, and I see this every day on Twitter and so on, who are saying, Democrats are so hopeless, we've always been hopeless, we're always gonna be hopeless. You know, 2018, 2020 is already lost because we're not standing up for the right issues, we're not. Is the hope that actually, no, we are slowly working those things out and over time we are gonna get it right and we have a chance of beating Donald Trump in 2020? You know, there have been issues on which Democrats have been on defense for many years. Healthcare is a prime example of where over time, we've sort of thought this could end up being a political liability for us in some way. You had the brief moment of energy behind getting Obamacare passed, but then many more years of just getting into a defensive crouch around it. 
2018, Democrats have come out swinging on that issue, which is the number one issue for Americans. The number one issue is healthcare costs, health insurance. And I think we have seized the initiative on it with a sense of purpose and energy and optimism that is going to have a profound impact in 2018 and looking ahead to 2020. So that is one area where I already have seen Democrats really stepping up. If you look at Connor Lamb's race in Western Pennsylvania, another issue that Democrats have been playing defense on for a long time, unions. Hmm. Connor Lamb made that a central part of his campaign. You know what? It has gone too far. The decline in collective bargaining power for workers is part of what's hollowing out the middle class. And gosh darn it, we are going to support public unions and we're going to come back on this. That that too is another area where Democrats have moved from the back foot to the front foot. More broadly, I think part of the reason that you hear so much of the critique of Democrats today is because they all say, well, there's no unified message. There's no standard bearer. Well, of course that's the case. Right, because you just don't have that. We're gonna have an open primary in 2020, so there isn't going to be a single person today. And secondly, this election in 2018 is gonna be played out in Senate and House races in very different parts of the country where individual candidates are taking the measure of their district mm. and building on a platform of common values to create their own strategy to win. And so far, the results have been pretty darn good. So I find this talk about the lack of a clear national message that you know is standing up against Trumpism uh, to not be nearly as uh, challenging or problematic as many in the kind of Washington echo chamber, at least, who are wringing their hands have made it out to be. And I actually think... In individual districts, Democrats are seeing the basic insight of my piece, which is making an argument for mobilized, ambitious, effective government to help solve people's problems because those problems have gotten so big due to the supply side ideology of the Republicans. People are making that argument in different ways, and the results so far suggest that it is likely to work. Now, could we lose the House? And could we be sitting here at the end of the year and saying, gosh, we really have gone completely wrong? We could. But I actually believe where we are right now is in a much better place than the conventional wisdom suggests in terms of where not just the energy and ideas of the party are, but how they are being operationalized in this campaign season. Well, look, I I think that's very persuasive. And honestly, anybody who's listened to this conversation and who goes and reads your article in the Moxie Journal should be convinced that there's much livelier and deeper analysis and thinking going on in the Democratic Party, even the sort of conventional wisdom on on Twitter and so on would sometimes have it. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Jake. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. Go back in time and replace those ghastly Gazprom ads in the World Cup final with ads for the good fight and democracies everywhere. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.